things up in verse 5 in terms of what we're studying because we've already studied the first four verses of chapter 8, but I'll begin my reading in verse 1. Therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemns sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, not by us, but in us first and foremost, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, now in earnest. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. And so then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, as he speaks to us as Christians, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit of life, uh, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this morning for the miracle of your Word. We thank you for the diversity of your Word and how every single jot and tittle, every thought, every precept is designed to do something important in our lives and in our relationship with you. And we're glad to come to these verses this morning in Romans chapter 8 and eager to see what you're going to bring out of them and what you desire to speak to each one of us in our relationship with you from them. We pray that you would do that. We pray that you would, by your Spirit, give us ears to hear and to hear you personally through your Word this morning in our personal relationship with you. And we ask for that work of your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> because we've been a several-week absence from uh, the book of Romans, I think it's helpful to at least remember that uh, Romans chapters 6 through 8 deals specifically with a single subject, and that is the subject of our sanctification as Christians. And sanctification is uh, an important word. There's nothing, it's not like a holy word or a, a, you know, some kind of a theological word that none of us should be able to grasp and understand, but it simply means to be holy. Uh, to be sanctified means to be Christ-like. It means that our life is fashioned by uh, the Holy Spirit and in accordance with uh, the Word of God. It is to live a life that is different. Uh, from uh, what we would otherwise know, <clears throat> excuse me, in the world, and very different from the life that we lived before we became Christians. Every Christian is sanctified. We are to be sanctified. 
Let's also t- uh, think it's important as, as we look back a little bit to establish some context so what we're looking at here today can have uh, the full impact that uh, it, it ought to have. It's good for us to go back into chapter 6 for just a moment and to remember the emphasis of Paul there related to our sanctification. And Paul laid out in chapter 6 that God's plan of salvation not only provides us as Christians with the forgiveness of our sins past, and it not only provides us with the confidence, the absolute confidence of heaven in our future, but this salvation that Jesus has provided to us in His death and His burial and His resurrection also provides us with the power to live a godly life now, to live a sanctified life, a life free from the power of sin, what I like to call the victorious Christian life. Paul then went on into chapter 7, and he details what uh, so many Christians do upon hearing that not only are they forgiven of their sins as a result of becoming a Christian, and not only do they have the absolute confidence of heaven as a result of becoming a Christian, but they've been called to a holy life, that so often the Christian's tendency is, certainly if you're type A, is to now endeavor to accomplish our sanctification between our salvation and ultimately getting into heaven, to, to accomplish our sanctification or becoming holy on the basis of keeping some kind of a law. So we look at the Word of God, we see that God has um, filled it with wonderful commands. We have a sense of privilege for these uh, commands. We see that God calls us to live a life that is different from the life that we once lived. And so uh, the tendency now is to roll up our, our sleeves and attempt to accomplish our own sanctification by way, as Paul brings out, of law. Now I'm going to sanctify myself by virtue of keeping uh, the law of Moses or keeping some other set uh, of, of rules or any kind of law that a denomination or non-denomination or a Christian sect might come up with or some series of laws that you might come up with for your own life for uh, becoming sanctified. And then with that, uh, some kind of a law or some kind of our own uh, uh, self-devised definition of sanctification and the laws that constitute it, now we then decide that we're going to uh, keep these laws or to even keep the commandments in the Word of God in our own strength on the basis of our own determination. Again, we look at the Word of God We see it's full of commands, and we determine, all right, again, the sense of privilege related to having the commands, and so I'm uh, going to determine, God has saved me, I'm so thankful, I'm on my way to heaven, I'm so thankful, I'm now in my own strength, in my own discipline, in my own self-determination, going to keep the commandments that I see in the Bible. And it always ends in a shipwreck, as Romans chapter 7 shows what happens to that kind of a Christianity, one where we're trying uh, to live it on the basis of keeping law, even a law as good as the law of Moses, or on the basis of of keeping God's commandments in our own strength. It's always a crash and burn. I mean, we look at the, the Christian life as it's described to us in Scripture, and we want to live that. We want to be that. But nobody can in their own strength uh, come and, and uh, keep, the, uh, keep those commandments. It is impossible uh, to do. So it always ends up in complete failure and frustration. 
and, and we end up condemned, and, uh, uh, and, and uh, it ends in, as Paul closed Romans chapter 7, in what is absolutely a wretched Christian life, because the Christian life cannot be lived in the strength of the flesh. It just simply cannot. And I don't care how determined a person is. I don't care how self-disciplined we are. I don't care how thankful we are even for our salvation and possessing the highest motivations now for endeavoring to live the Christian life. If we endeavor to do it in our own strength, we will crash and burn. That is inevitable. That's what Paul brings out in Romans chapter 7. It ends with, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me uh, from this flesh and the bondage of this flesh? And that happens to everyone. Uh, someone may crash and burn and, and uh, fall in a heap in terms of condemnation and see the utter impossibility of me being able to keep these commandments in my own strength. Someone who doesn't have a lot of strength they'll encounter that within them in 48 hours, within two weeks. Uh, someone who is highly disciplined in their life, very, very strong uh, person, very, very uh, determined. It may take them two months. It may take them six months. It may take them two years, but ultimately, they will hit the same place. I cannot do this in my own strength. And chapter 7 then gives way to the glory of chapter 8, where Paul drives home the point that the Christian life can only be lived in and through the person and the work of the Holy Spirit within our lives. And as we saw last time in looking at Romans chapter uh, 8, uh, in our study of it, the Christian, as Paul describes here in those verses 1 through 4 of chapter 8, the Christian is not now lawless by virtue of no longer being under the law of Moses. A Christian doesn't uh, throw off the law of Moses and say, now I'm freed from it. I'm free to live any kind of lawless, self-determined, uh, sinful life that I choose to. I'm no longer under law. But Paul laid out the fact that when the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and we become Christians by virtue of that spiritual birth, that the Holy Spirit also at that moment in time introduced a new law into our lives that Paul so perfectly describes as the law of the Spirit. And the law, the Holy Spirit brings a law into our lives, and He brings a law into our lives that is even more demanding than the law of Moses. The law of Moses, by and large, simply dealt with our outward actions, man's outward actions. But the law of the Spirit deals with the innards. It deals with our thinking. It deals with our feeling. It deals with our motivations. It deals with our attitudes. But the law, uh, uh, that law of the Spirit, when the Holy Spirit brings that law into our lives, He doesn't merely bring that law, this high standard that Christ says, this is the kind of life and the only kind of life that properly represents me as being distinctive and different in this world is a member of my kingdom. And the Holy Spirit brings that glorious high standard into our life when He comes into our our lives, but He also brings with that law the desire to keep that law, a supernatural desire to obey that law, a supernatural desire to live a holy life. And then with that desire, He then gives us the power to obey the life that He causes us uh, to desire. But 
at this point in our study concerning sanctification and personal holiness, as it's described here in verses 6 through 8, we're well along in the progression and uh, in, in this thing called the victorious Christian life. And as we come now to chapter 8, verse 5, I can almost anticipate, as we've spent weeks getting here, a protest in the heart of some or a building uh, protest that it, it, in a kind of discomfort is, or dis-ease with, uh, with what, a dis-ease with what's uh, been said up to this point. And the protest that I can almost anticipate is this. Pastor Damien, it sounds as if all of this is a little unbalanced to me. It sounds as if all of the responsibility for my sanctification as a Christian lies solely with God. It sounds as if I play no part in it at all, as if I bear no responsibility for uh, any of this. In other words, you have so emphasized the person and the work of the Holy Spirit in our sanctification that I can think in my mind that it would be very easy for a Christian who is not living a holy life to convince themselves that the, the lack of a holiness in their life is no fault of their own at all, but that it is the fault of uh, the Holy Spirit, the failure on, uh, on some part, on God's part, uh, that He's to blame for a, a continuing in a, a defeated, carnal, uh, sin-filled life, where someone can look and say, I thought the Holy Spirit was supposed to produce uh, this within my life. He is supremely. He is, there is no holy life apart from the Holy Spirit. But where a person can look and, and having not been confronted yet with the role that we play in our own sanctification, there is no, uh, no taking the place of what the Holy Spirit brings in, in all of that. But if we stop there, then a person can look and say, in my porn addiction or in my drug addiction or my alcohol addiction or my addiction to spending and debt or my addiction uh, to temper, and the reason that I remain bogged in sin is I ask God every day to fill me with the Spirit and give me the victory, and the reason that I remain bogged down and dominated by sin must be some failure on the part of the Scriptures or some failure on the part of the Holy Spirit within my life. And Paul now rectifies or keeps us from going into that place and falling for that self-deception or misunderstanding of the Christian life. Remember now, Paul, in the book of Romans, I mean, his thinking and his logic is so tight it can hold water. So when he's talking about our sanctification and, and the victorious Christian life in chapters 6 through 8, I mean, the, the way to do it would be to come into a room like this, block off 12 hours, and then give it the attention that it's due. But that's how long it would take. Uh, but that's not how sermons and church services operate. We have to take these things in, in piecemeal. So we take these pieces uh, at a time, can't cover the subject all in, in, in one session, so we take it one piece at a time, and now we move from, uh, not from, but we now complement the person and the work of the Holy Spirit in terms of sanctification in our lives by now uh, moving forward in Paul's thought progression here as he moves on to instruct us as Christians concerning our own personal responsibility for our sanctification. He broached the subject in chapter 8 
uh, verse 4, notice again that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And then he describes us as Christians in the, uh, from there who do not walk according to the flesh, but according uh, to the Spirit. And so when he, uh, he, he declares there, speaking of people who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, Paul is declaring that this is to be normative in our lives as Christians, that we do not uh, walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. He knows that the great question that will arise in our mind at this point is, great, but how does that happen practically within my life? How is it that I'm able to live this life of not walking according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit? And so in verse 5, he begins an enlargement upon that thought with the word for. It's the first word of verse 5. For is a reason word. He's going to give us the reason for, uh, for this. And again, there's a, a thought progression that he has that he's building on here. Essentially, in verses 5 through 13, Paul now provides each of us as Christians with what I think is just, it, it is for me, I know you feel the same way, absolutely invaluable instruction concerning the part that each of us plays by the power of the Holy Spirit in our own sanctification. And again, in the words of verse 4, in not walking according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And Paul says this not walking according to the flesh, but walking in the Spirit includes four things. Number one in verse 5, that we, uh, first thing is we're to refrain from living according to the flesh or setting our minds upon the things of the flesh. The second thing that he speaks about is also in verse 5, that we are to live, uh, we are to live according to the Holy Spirit and set our minds upon the things of the Spirit. The third thing that he talks about, he jumps to in verse 12, that we're to recognize that we're debtors to live a holy life. And then the fourth thing in verse 13 is the necessity of mortifying the deeds of the body in all of this. We won't cover all four of those things this morning. Uh, we'll only cover the, the first two of those this morning and pick up the second part next week. The first part that we play in our own sanctification, and Paul wants us to know this, is in refraining from living according to the flesh, number one, and then refraining from setting our minds on the things of the flesh, refraining from being carnally minded, as he describes it at the beginning of verse 6. Who he's describing there is he's describing an unsaved person. And an unsaved person, most of us, I, I, I don't know how many of you were saved, and you were in church the first Sunday uh, you were born, and have been in church all of your life, and you don't have any kind of distinctive experience of, uh, of you know, uh, touring with the Rolling Stones before you became a Christian, or whatever, uh, you know, your BC days might have uh, looked like. But for most of us, we understand what it is to not have been a Christian and to be a Christian now. And that we follow what Paul is describing here in terms of someone who is not a Christian. He declares that they only have one nature. 
and the only nature a non-Christian has. He doesn't say it derogatorily. He doesn't poke them in the eye. It's just a statement of, of fact in this regard. The only nature that any person is born into the world with is our own our old Adam nature, the fallen, sin-filled, sin-dominated, self-dominated nature that we have inherited as descendants of Adam and Eve. And that's what the flesh refers to when he talks about it there in verse 5. He's not talking about, uh, you know, flesh and bones and and our physical body. He's talking about this fallen uh, nature that uh, that we're to refrain from living according uh, to that. Now, as a result of being dominated by the fleshly, uh, flesh nature, uh, the uh, result for the unsaved person, and again, we, I certainly do, most of us in this room recognize it, the end result is, is that their mindsets, that is their thoughts, their interests, their affections, their purpose and their goals in life, are utterly dominated by a love for sin, an addiction to sin, an attraction to sin, a, 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 a love for selfishness and selfism, a love for the ungodly appetites and the urges of the physical body. It snaps its finger. We jump to attention, and we obey it, and we give this sin-loving nature what it wants. We didn't have an option before we became a, a, a Christian. A new spirit wasn't a part of our lives. And then to have our, our emotions and our thoughts absolutely dominated uh, by the fallen nature as well. Now, Paul elaborates on all of this in several places in, in other epistles. Let me give you an example of it in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And Paul writes now to Christians. He said, "In you, he, that speaking of God, made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. And then here it is. Among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as others." And Paul is saying related to the flesh, the flesh does not love God. It does not love holiness. The flesh only loves sin. It only loves itself. It doesn't want to obey God. It doesn't want to obey God's commandments. It only wants to live for sin and for itself. And what Paul is telling us here is Christians. He's talking to Christians. You say, why the uh, you know, why the uh, excursus or the, the tangent on unbelievers? Here's the point that he's making. Paul is telling us that while this characterized us once before we became Christians, while all of this characterizes the life of an unsafe person, it is not to be the life that we live or to be the priorities that we hold now as Christians. Now, I want you to notice in verses 5 and 6 that Paul describes this inalterable relationship that exists between what we set our minds on and the person that we become. 
And it doesn't matter how many of the seven billion people that live in the world, however many people are in this room, how many people have lived in human history, nobody violates that law. There is a relationship, an alterable relationship between, that exists between what we set our minds on and the person we become and the life we end up living. In other words, what we set our minds upon, what we make the focus of our lives, will determine where we, uh, the life that we end up living. Now, famously, Ralph Waldo Emerson, uh, he had it exactly right when he famously wrote, sow a thought and you reap an action. Sow an action and you reap a habit. Sow a habit and you reap a character, and sow a character and you reap a destiny. Nobody escapes that progression. And the reason that nobody escapes that progression is not because Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote it, though he's to be commended for that, but the Apostle Paul wrote 1,800 years before Ralph Waldo Emerson, and he put it this way in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. He said, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. And, and he's writing to Christians. Whatever a man sows, that he shall also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. There is no escaping the progression. We reap what we sow in our lives. On a physical level, on an emotional level, on a mental level, on every level. There is always a reaping that goes with the sowing. Now, all of this then raises the question in the mind of, uh, of a Christian as we're uh, reading this and studying it, and, and uh, we say, okay, there's the theology of it, but I need something where the rubber really hits the road. What is Paul talking about, uh, about here? And it raises the question then, what kind of things are we to refrain from setting our minds upon, number one, and then to refrain from actually practicing as Christians? Can you give me some example? And Paul primes the pump in this regard continually in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit inspiring him to do that. But let me give you an example of one place that he says, this is the kind of thing that we're not to set our minds upon and we're not to practice. Galatians chapter 5, verse 21. Paul wrote, now the works of the flesh, there's that word again, they're evident, which are adultery, fornication, that's sex outside of marriage, uncleanness, that's sexual immorality uh, of all kinds that doesn't involve actual sexual intercourse, lewdness, uh, uh, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, that is, partying, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he lays this list of sins out, and then he ends it with kind of like, I could go on and on and on and continue the list. He uh, ends the list by saying, and the like. It's not an exhaustive list. 
and and base and and uh, and so he says that what we are to deny ourselves, not to set our minds upon, not to practice in our lives, are, is basically sin. Anything that is prohibited by Scripture, and and by the power of the Holy Spirit within us, we are no longer to make sin the focus of our thinking. We're no longer to make it the the, the practice of our lives. And in order to do this, we have to be, as Christians in this world and in this culture, very discerning about what we allow into the eye gate of our lives and what we allow into the ear gate of our lives uh, to then come in and begin to master our heart, uh, to master our mind, to master our will. And so the importance of setting up uh, protection and being discerning about what we allow into our eyes and, and into our, our ears, and, to, and very discerning concerning those things that would glorify these kind of sins in our life, not merely avoiding the practice of them, but avoiding the, anything that I would be involved in that would glorify these sins and, and to allow that glorification to now become a part of my life or to allow anything into the eye gate or into the ear gate that would encourage me to engage uh, in these uh, sins. And we know we live in a world all around us that is the constant message and attempt to enter into the eye gate and through the ear gate and to draw us into or, and tempt us into all of these kinds of, of sins. And, and to uh, encourage us to engage in these sins and to uh, glorify these sins within our hearts and within our minds. But to stop and to look and say, if I have any concern at all for my own personal holiness, I will be very discerning uh, related to anything that I will allow into my heart and mind that glorifies or encourages these things in my life. Uh, be it what I watch on television or in terms of the movies that I watch. And we think today in this age, everything's become so lax in terms of, of holiness that to talk about these things is, is legalism. But Paul isn't kidding here. To look and to say anything that would set before my eyes, that would draw me into or encourage or lower the barriers within my life in terms of sexual purity or in terms of honesty or in terms of profanity, and how speech is to be used, uh, what, then these things are to be limited related to our lives. They're to be eliminated related to our lives, whether they take the form of movies or in the form of television or in, in, in terms of what we read in the form of entertainment, video games that we play, the websites that we visit, the music or the podcasts that, that we download and we listen to, and, and so forth. And when we look at how pagan and sin-absorbed and self-absorbed uh, the culture is all around us, but it's no more than, than what the Roman Empire was like when Paul wrote to the church at Rome these, these, these very things. But when we see how pagan and sin-absorbed and self-absorbed our culture has become, then we realize that a holy life, a sanctified life, will require that each of us sets up very significant and very non-negotiable boundaries in our life in, in this regard. And to say, whatever it is that glorifies these things in my life, 
uh, or attempts to uh, glorify these sins or encourages the practice of these sins that I'm going to not allow them to now dominate my thinking or have a place in my thinking. Now, notice that Paul gives us several reasons for committing to holy thinking and and holy uh, living. He tells us in verse 6 that to be carnally minded uh, is uh, death, and he's talking about an unsaved person. And, uh, and to be carnally minded and to be only carnally minded, it reveals a person to be spiritually dead. They're separated from a relationship with God. There's no new nature in them. And then uh, ultimately, uh, that spiritually dead condition, if a person remains in that, they end up in an eternal death and in, into a judgment. The second thing that he speaks about is in verse 7, and he tells us that the carnal mind, in other words, this kind of thinking, this kind of mind that uh, allows this kind of thing in, uh, uh, into it and meditates upon uh, this kind of thing, uh, that this kind of thinking and the life that results from it is enmity against God because it refuses the law of God, and he said, indeed, it cannot submit to God's law uh, without a spiritual birth, which the unsaved person refuses up to uh, that point in, in their life. The word enmity that God talks about in, in terms of this is his enmity uh, with him. The word means hostility. It means hatred. It means an enemy of. In other words, to live this kind of life it isn't harmless. It isn't innocuous. Uh, there aren't any uh, victimless crimes or victimless uh, sins. To engage in, in, in any of these things, uh, Paul is saying, is to wage an open war against God and against His creation, how He has made us, how He has made the world. It is an expression of rebellion against God, and it is an expression of hatred against God. And that's how God views it. That's how He views this kind of life. It sets the bar very high in our lives, and it's important that that happens because we can begin to reintroduce all manner of sin back into our lives as Christians, and we forget that this kind of mind and this kind of life is enmity with God. You have now, when I do this, and if you do this, I have now introduced a war against God uh, into my heart and into my mind that God never intends to be there. And, and so, uh, one of the casualties of all of it is going to be, as we'll see in a moment, peace and enjoy and, and all of it. But it is, it, it makes us realize this is serious business what we do, the life that we choose to live, even as a Christian, to choose and say, listen, I only want to be holy this far. I only want to be good this far. I only want to be Christ-like this far. Think about that now. I only want to be Christ-like this far. I mean, his death, his burial, his resurrection, he did all of that to accomplish this particular kind of life and will and plan for my life, but I'm going to become the Lord of my own life, and disregard it, I will only go this far. I mean, you think about the affront of it, and it is to wage a war against God. And, uh, and it's important for us to recognize what a, if, that, if that attitude is an affront to God in the life of a non-Christian, 
How much more is it an affront to God if I allow it a place within my own life as a Christian? If I return to the same thought patterns and meditations and reading and watching and living that I lived uh, and was a part of my life before I became a Christian? It's not a small, it's not a small issue. It's not a small business. And I'm not yelling at anybody today. You know who I'm yelling at today? I got my voice is a little raised, isn't it? At myself. And I'll tell you why. Because every single day I have to, as a Christian, just like you do it, I have to fight this war in this world and fight a war related to my old flesh that one day I will be done with when I get into heaven, but in the meantime, I'm not done with him. And I need, I need people in my own life to remind me how wonderfully high the standard is for our lives as Christians and what is stake, at stake related to that. And so when Paul comes in with this kind of strength and reminds me of my own personal responsibility, this isn't a completely God thing in, in my sanctification. It does something good in me, something important in me. In verse 8, Paul tells us that it's impossible to please God in living this kind of life that he has described. It is impossible to live a life, it is impossible to please God by living a life in, in which my life is dominated, my thinking is dominated by sin, and my life is dominated by the practice of sin. It is impossible to please God in that category. Now, we, so here you've got a preacher standing in front of you, and so far I've said the things that preachers kind of say, except that when we come to what Paul declares here in verse 8, and he tells us it is impossible to please God by living this kind of a life, that is, ought to be in my mind as a Christian like a bomb has gone off in my mind. Because the single great passion of our lives as Christians, I don't care what the passion is in the culture. I don't even care what level of passion there is in this regard within professing Christianity. But the passion, uh, the single great passion in the heart and the mind of a spirit-filled Christian is that my life will bring pleasure to God. And to hear that there is something that will hijack that and, and, uh, and uh, break that apart in, in my relationship uh, with Him, this great goal and desire for my life, it's something that ought to alarm. And so Paul brings, brings it out here. And the point that Paul is making for us as Christians is that we are, again, no longer to set our minds upon the things that we once did or commit the sins that we once committed uh, before we became uh, Christians. And there is a very great temptation, and I fight it in my own life. And that is over the long haul, 38 years I've been a Christian, over the long haul to begin such a life and relationship with God and a relationship with the Word of God and a relationship with sanctification and to take all of this very, very seriously, life and death seriously. But over the long haul of time, as the Christian life becomes years and then it becomes decades, 
there's that tendency to one day wake up in a room like this, or in my reading the Bible of Romans chapter 8 as it sits on my lap at home, and to realize that over a course of 38 years, my life is not progressing in the right direction on this issue. And if the truth were made known, that brick by brick and board by board, I have reintroduced everything back into my life that was once a part of my life before I became a Christian until my life is by degrees almost exactly like what it was before I was a Christian, only now I'm saved. And this is the temptation. I don't say that that is my life. I'm using myself as an example. But that is the temptation that all of us face in our Christian life. And none of us should ever be more, have been, should be more holy and serious about our own sanctification uh, in, in the first six months of our Christian life uh, than we are now many years and many decades later. This is something that is to build and to grow related to our lives. And yet so often a Christian can look back and say, the first six months of my Christian life or first five years of my Christian life, it was this. I would have never touched that. I would have never watched that. I would have never listened to that. Those words would have never come out of my mouth. I would have never blown my cool like that over and over and over again and gotten uh, comfortable with it. And that, that, that tendency and that temptation that can be a part of our lives and the importance of allowing a passage like this to search, what do I put in front of my mind on a regular basis as a Christian? What do I set my mind on? And what does my Christian life look like? And am I growing in Christlikeness and in uh, uh, sanctification? Now, it's important to notice that Paul declares all of this to us here in the context of Romans chapter 8, in the context of the person and the work of, of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And the Holy Spirit is the focus of, of uh, Paul in, in chapter 8. In other words, n- not only is sin uh, physically and emotionally and mentally and spiritually harmful to us, And not only does it lead us into a direction in life that's completely contrary to the plan that God has uh, for our lives, but to set my mind on the things of the flesh and to live according to the flesh, it's absolutely disastrous for any Christian who hopes to be Spirit-filled and has a longing to be uh, Spirit-filled. Uh, filled and to be controlled by the Spirit, led by the Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Because as the Apostle Paul tells us elsewhere in the New Testament, to allow my thinking to now become what it once was and the way the world thinks, to allow my life to now be conformed to uh, the way that the world fashions a life and what my life uh, once was like, if I am choosing to allow my life to, be, to become that, if I have such a disregard for my own sanctification, though this becomes my decision-making, these are my choices within my life, I can, as a Christian, cry out for a filling of the Holy Spirit and a refilling of the Holy Spirit and a refilling of the Holy Spirit and a refilling of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit until I'm blue in the face because I'm asking for something. I'm asking for the power to live a victorious life, 
but in my decision-making, I'm saying to God, I have no concern for it at all. And when a Christian does that, what happens in our life, and we have no hope of living a holy life apart from the Holy Spirit, and what happens if we settle into this place is that we end up grieving the Holy Spirit, first of all, and then we end up quenching uh, the Holy Spirit. Uh, virtually putting out his influence within our lives, and no one can live a, a, a Christian life and, and live a sanctified life or experience a victorious Christian life in, uh, with the Holy Spirit, either grieved within our lives or, or quenched within our lives. And so, we have a responsibility to protect the sanctifying influence of the Holy Spirit in our lives as Christians by refusing to entertain anything that plants and nurtures ungodly thinking in our minds and in our hearts, and by refusing to continue to practice the sins that characterized our, sin, our lives before becoming Christians. That's the negative of it. And the, uh, Paul goes on to the positive of it, of it in, in verse 5, which we will close with. I will not be nearly as long, of course, in, in dealing with this as, as, as previous. Thankful in large part because of Pastor Tom's message that he delivered uh, two Sunday nights ago, which I would encourage every single one of us. I put it in my favorites uh, category in my, in my iPod uh, in, in this vein. I won't preach a sermon for you. It, it preaches for itself. Those of you who were here, you know what it, it did in your heart. I know what it did in mine. But the second part we play in our own sanctification is in choosing to live uh, according to the Spirit and setting our minds upon the things of the Spirit. In other words, it, it, and this is very important in our, in our sanctification, in order to experience the full dynamic of the Holy Spirit within my life, it not only involves not sowing to the flesh, but it also requires sowing to the Spirit. That is that we need to sow into our lives those things that build us up spiritually, that build up the inner man, the new man, uh, that, that we are as a result of our, our spiritual birth, and to, and to pour into our lives those things that provide spiritual nourishment to this new nature that the Holy Spirit has brought uh, into our lives when we became Christians. Again, Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he shall also reap. For he who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. We've just spent 25 minutes talking about that, but Paul didn't stop there. He went on and said, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit uh, reap everlasting life. It is the two elements within our lives uh, as Christians. And he lists some of the blessings uh, of this within, within our lives. He tells us in verse 6 that to be spiritually minded uh, is, results in life and peace, because as we obey God's Word and His commandments, we're living life as God intended us uh, to live life and, uh, and, and, and how He's created us uh, to live. And so, it raises the question as well, how do we sow to the Spirit? We understand now that we're not to sow to the flesh or make those things the meditations of our, our life or the practice of our life, but now how do we address 
and, and, uh, and sow to the Spirit and nourish uh, the inner man, the spiritual side uh, of my life. And I don't think there's any better place to discover that than for our minds to go back to Acts chapter 2, where Paul get, Peter gets up on the day of Pentecost and he, following the, the filling of the, all of the disciples with the Holy Spirit in the upper room, and the question about what does all of this mean on the part of thousands of devout Jews within the city at the outpouring of the Spirit, and they ask, what does this mean? And Peter stands up, and he preaches a great sermon. And as a result of that sermon, 3,000 people were saved right there on the spot. And what Peter and the apostles then faced in that moment in time was now we've got 3,000 Christians, 3,000 babies. They've got a spiritual birth that's occurred inside of their heart. But now, how do we take them to maturity? How do we nourish this new thing that's been birthed into their heart so they can become strong uh, Christians? And we're told then famously in Acts 2.42 that they solved this by continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. And how do we feed our spirit, our inner man, supremely by the apostles' doctrine, by reading God's Word, by studying God's Word? Again, I refer you to Tom's uh, study. All of the ways of, of uh, our devotional life and reading it, beginning the day, letting it wash us and change our perspectives. Bible studies like we're in right now and offered through the week, downloading Bible studies all over the internet. We can grow as fast as we want in the Word today, given the technology uh, that we have. And then personal Bible study, that we take certain subjects. I'm dealing with anger in my life, let's say, or I'm dealing with what to do with my finances, or how do I handle debt, or how do I deal with communication within a marriage. And not to wait for a sermon like that to be preached on a Sunday morning, as wonderful as that would be, but there's a Bible that's there in my home, and I can open it up and begin to study what does the Bible say upon this issue that I'm dealing with in life. And the Word of God coming in. I, I am, I, I'm around the Word of God all of the time as a pastor, all of the time. And the, I mean, it just, it fills my life. And yet, and I listen to Bible studies and do a lot of reading related to, you know, sermon preparation and all, but that's not the only interaction I have with the Word. I find that the pull of the world is so strong, or the defilement of it, or just the fact that as I'm serving God, there's a, the inner man is an inner man. I mean, it, 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 any of us that are engaged in our calling and we give ourselves fully to that calling, there's an exertion that's involved in this. There are calories that are involved in this, spiritually speaking. There's a giving away. There's a growth in muscle that is, that is happening and requires calories, spiritual calories, uh, to grow stronger. And all of that comes by the Word of God. And I've always got a Bible study tape going on to build me up in my relationship and to stay stronger and maybe a step or two ahead of the world and the temptations that are coming into my life. The importance he speaks of fellowship here, and this speaks of our relationships with one another, and what an important part that plays in building up and affirming and strengthening the inner man. 
And not talking about the Golden State Warriors or talking about the 49ers. There's nothing wrong with that as Christians, but it's not talking about that, Christians talking about that, but talking about the things of the Lord. And here I am in the middle of a trial that you went through three months ago or six years ago, and I'm facing it for the first time. I don't have any idea. Where does this go? Is there hope? Is there, where does this thing lead? And you say, I can't really tell you all of those things, but let me give you three verses that help me get through that season in my own life. And now those become verses that I commit to memory, and I might not even have known they were in the Bible, except in fellowship with another Christian they came forth. Christian fellowship uh, brings, uh, pr produces such health within the inner man. The breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper always does that as we stop and remember Jesus' death, His burial, and His resurrection, and, and His grace and His love behind it. And then prayers, and uh, not only our own individual prayers to the Lord, but meeting together for prayer. I think the worship service is, constitutes prayer. We are directing communication uh, to God. And to throw on uh, K-Love or to download Christian music on an iPod or an iPhone or whatever, Android or whatever you use, and to have that always going on in life to build us up uh, uh, spiritually. And all of it, is, it provides a powerful fuel to the spiritual fire that is, is needed in our, our Christian lives. I, I, I want to close with, with this, and it's an illustration that's famous, and maybe you've heard it uh, 20 times before in your Christian life, and, uh, but it, it never does me harm to listen to it, and, and somebody can hear it and, it, and it can transform their thinking and, and their understanding of all of this. Every single one of us is Christians. We have two natures inside of us. We have an old nature, the old Adam nature, and, and we've got this new nature that the Holy Spirit has brought into our life. And the one nature loves God, and the other nature loves self-preservation and self, and it, and it loves sin. And, and, and both of these natures exist within us. Paul described it this way in Galatians chapter 5. He said, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the, lust, uh, the flesh lusts against the Spirit. Do you know anything about that? And the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so, they, they, so that you do not do the things that, that you wish. And we have these two natures that are at war within us as Christians. And, um, and in the Bible here, teaching that in order for the spirit nature to be uh, to remain uh, uh, above the old nature in terms of dominating uh, our life, the importance of feeding the spiritual man that lives inside of us and then starving the flesh. The illustration is one of going out and walking two uh, gigantic dogs. You can choose the dog in your own mind. And if you go out and walk uh, two individual dogs and they're both on a, a, a leash and you go any distance at all and you're going to realize that those dogs have a different idea uh, from one another in terms of the walk uh, that they intend upon having, and especially if it's the spirit and the flesh. And you've got the one dog that represents the spirit. It wants to pull us in one direction in life, and the other dog represents uh, the flesh, and it wants to pull us in a different direction in life. And how in the world do we, what part do we play in which uh, dog is going to be uh, the dominant influence within our life? And the control that we have it relates to which one we feed. And if we feed the old man, 
We feed the flesh. We engage in sin. We are going to make that dog as big as a Shetland pony, the flesh. And then the spiritual man, if we deny him the nourishment that he needs, he's going to be little Fifi back here, the French poodle, and we're going to drag it behind us in, in life. That flesh is going to just drag us all the way through life in, in, because it's what we're feeding. It's what we're empowering in life. But conversely, if we feed the inner man, the spiritual man, we feed that dog, that, that nature that's been developed, put in our lives by the Holy Spirit, and we deny food. And the only way to deal with the flesh is to starve it to death. In this life, you cannot impale it. You cannot put it to death completely. One day it will be in the age to come. The only thing we can do is starve it to death. And to so feed the flesh and so, uh, so feed the Spirit, and so uh, deny the flesh that now the Spirit pulls us in life, and we're dragging this flesh behind us, but powerless to lead us. And that's what this sowing and reaping uh, process does within uh, our lives, sowing to the Spirit and starving the flesh. And doing this is an absolutely inescapable and basic principle of sanctification. And so this morning, just to allow, I mean, the, 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 the clarity, the strength, the beautiful strength, Rome was just sin central. We just, th we think this is, you know, the world's never been worse in terms of sin than it is now. Christians have always had to stand in the kind of temptations that we face today and the pulls upon, uh, upon the flesh, the access uh, to, to sin as well. And so to just allow this morning as we look at this, th this section, the first part of two, two parts here, and to allow it to examine the sowing and reaping processes in, in our lives this morning, and to really ask in the privacy of my own heart, in the light uh, uh, of the Scriptures, which of those two dogs am I feeding? If the truth were really to be made known, and it is to God, which two of those dogs am I feeding supremely? And to ask myself, again sincerely, how well-directed is my thinking anymore as a Christian? How well-directed is the sowing processes in my life? How much of my life is dominated by and lived in obedience to my flesh and the sin nature as opposed to being lived in obedience and under the direction and the influence of the Holy Spirit? And to allow it uh, allow it to search us and to realize that as a Christian, I have a part to play in my own sanctification, and I have a responsibility to protect the sanctifying influence of the Holy Spirit in my life by actively choosing to protect that work of the Spirit by sowing to the Spirit and refusing to sow anything that feeds and strengthens my flesh, the old nature from, from Adam. And again, I tell you, I've walked with the Lord for 38 years, and I can tell you as I try to navigate as a Christian the same world that you navigate in, I face all of the temptations uh, that you face, all of the pressure, all of the desires, all of the, uh, the inclination toward establishing a, a very, very comfortable, self-defined Christianity that is not what God wants uh, for my life, 
but this is all I'm willing to do, and this is all I'm willing to live, and this is all I'm willing to take seriously as it relates to sanctification in my life, and forget about my own reputation, and even, God, forget about your reputation in all of this as people would look to my life to see something different and have hope that change could occur in their life. And it has never done me any harm in 38 years to have anyone, as Paul does in this passage or in any environment like this, to have somebody challenge me to re-examine my thinking and to re-examine where my mind is going and what I'm allowing into my life and then beyond that, even what I'm practicing within my life and to be awakened once again to the part that I play in the power of the Holy Spirit in my own sanctification, lest I fall prey to the great lie of the devil and the great self-deception that occurs when a person says, I can't get free from this sin and I'm a Christian and it must be that God has failed me or the Holy Spirit has failed me in my life when always it can go back to the sowing and the reaping process and the familiarity with the Holy Spirit and stepping out in His power and in His direction. It's horrible enough to be dominated by sin, dominated by pornography or dominated by spending or dominated by anger or dominated by stealing or lying. It's hard enough to be dominated by those things as a Christian and to be in the misery of that place. The only thing that makes it worse is if I begin to think that it's God's fault that I'm in this place because I do not know that I also play a part in my own sanctification. And so Paul rectifies it in this wonderful needed passage that we've studied this morning. Let's stand together now and we'll pray. Father, thank you for the clarity of your word. And, and as we go through these three chapters on sanctification with Paul and how he brings out in the fullness of the strength of related to the Holy Spirit, and then he moves to our part, and he, and he brings that forth with, with equal strength. And we just thank you for this instruction from your Word. And Lord, we just invite, and Lord, I, I just I pray for myself supremely, but I would pray for anyone in this room that cannot, Lord, as a Christian this morning, invite you uh, to examine our thinking processes and what we're setting our minds on in the day in, in and day out of our lives and testing it by your word to examine the life that we're actually living, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to be able to just ask that of you in sincerity and then be willing, Lord, to have you rummage through all of these things and then redefine all of this for our lives. And the Christianity that you have for us and the plan that you have for each of our lives individually. And I pray, Lord, that where this is going to be a big project for any of us as we stand before you this morning, it's not going to be taken care of in one minute or five minutes or ten minutes, that you would take us on a walk this afternoon, a long walk, and to just settle and resettle the issue of your Lordship in our life once again, to ask for a refilling of the Holy Spirit, to make the decisions that we once made concerning our life and return back to our first love and all of the joy and the peace and the victory 
that was once there. We pray for that work of your Spirit within our lives. I pray for myself, and I pray for each person in this room that this would not end as just another sermon on sanctification, but nothing change, but that something would change as a result, Lord, of our interacting with you today in your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.